today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, data driving the difference in the Defense Department. It's going to make us a more cost-effective organization, and it's going to make us uh, an organization that can provide better data to our senior decision makers. The letters behind the struggle with the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract. It probably comes down to three Ps, people, planning, and pandemic. And clouds delivering capability you won't expect at NGA. The ability to, to build and destroy daily, or, or even more frequently than that. Right, as we look at the world of, of DevSecOps, as we look at you know things that are offered by infrastructure as a service and containerization, we can do things so much faster. It's Thursday, February 24th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Office of Personnel Management's financial management system upgrade is behind schedule and over budget, according to the Government Accountability Office. GAO reports OPM used leading IT management practices in its requirements development, but it didn't in cost and schedule estimation and cybersecurity. Air Force Transportation Command's moving its cloud applications to the services Cloud One platform. Senior IT acquisition leaders at Transcom say they've already worked with Cloud One to kick off the transition. Transcom chose Cloud One after the Defense Department killed the Jedi Cloud Project. You can read more on these stories and lots of other news at fedscoop.com. Nominations are open now for the best bosses in federal IT. We want to honor the CIOs, CTOs, CISOs, and other technology leaders that are driving modernization and innovation across the federal government. You can file your nominations now. The list of finalists comes out March 28th, and you can find a link to learn more in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. A Marine Corps financial management transition to a system at the Defense Logistics Agency is complete. The Navy Financial Management and Comptroller's Office writes the transition will support the Marine Corps' goal of a clean audit opinion in fiscal 2023. Mark Easton is Professor of Financial Management at the Defense Acquisition University and former Deputy Chief Financial Officer at the Pentagon. Mark, welcome. It's great to see you again, my friend. How do transitions like this help organizations audit themselves and help external auditors audit them better. Welcome. Francis, good to see you again, as always. Uh, this transition with the Marine Corps is very unique and very, very important. And it signals uh, a recognition that we need to have fewer systems, more capable systems, uh, because quite frankly, the business environment uh, that we had before uh, was very functionally oriented, very uh, uh, stovepiped, uh, organizationally focused, and the Marine Corps stepping out and saying, hey, we're going to jump on a, a defense system uh, that uh, pro has proven to be uh, pretty capable, uh, and I think it's a signal for others uh, in their moving in the right direction. So mm -hmm. very, very important. What's the data element of this, Mark? You and I have talked before about the fact that the the, the currency, the oil that fuels the financial management system in the Pentagon, and, and I understand that other agencies too, is data. Are these systems yielding more data? Are they yielding different data? Is the data easier to uh, analyze and collate and curate all of the above, or is there some other benefit that I missed? The um, uh, data is really the key. It will be the key to, uh, uh, to doing something that's very, very important, and that is bringing integration between what has traditionally been important to the Department of Defense, sort of our operational domain, 
uh, in our back office or, or business domain. I mean, we clearly have spent a lot of time on the financial aspect of this, uh, but data will be uh, the key to making that back office much more efficient, much more auditable, uh, and most importantly, and this is where you really begin to tie the enterprise together, uh, provide better decisions, excuse me, better information for decision-making. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, uh, uh, the clue. If you have data that you're just using for financial reporting uh, and you're sort of thinking that that's separate from your other missions, uh, that's a problem. And, and so data is going to really make a big difference here. What are the big resources inside the department, Mark, that organizations have to make decisions data-wise? What, where do they go to get that information? Well, they've traditionally uh, depend. You know, we, we've traditionally relied on um, uh, PowerPoint and data calls uh, to be able to gather information together. Because you and I have talked about, uh, and this is not an excuse about why it has been such a challenge to make the Department of Defense auditable. Uh, but the massive nature, and as I mentioned before, the fact that our business environment has evolved sort of uh, uh, not in a very clear enterprise-oriented way. And so, um, and so in the past, we, we rely on different functional communities to gather information together. It takes time. Uh, uh, it can be interpreted. Uh, you know, right now, we're trying to take that same data that people have uh, that people have gathered together and put on PowerPoint slides and decided on how th- what the message they wanted to bring and tried to aggregate that in an environment. And the key has been big, the big data technology that's allowed us to do that for, uh, for the first time. What is the data? You used the term to me in, in notes before, the DOD data repository. What's that term mean and what does that encompass, Mark? When we began uh, our journey uh, of, uh, towards auditability, we did not have a, a good consistent capability to bring all of our transactional data together. So we began to develop a repository that we had in mind, just, just sort of the audit, building what we called a universe of transactions. Over time, that universe of transactions, as you well know, relies on feeder systems that are outside the financial management community. And so we found in addition to having that data aggregated in a coherent way, and that continues to evolve, uh, you know, we could use it for other things. We developed a repository. Uh, we, we, we changed the name multiple times as we're apt to do in DOD. Uh, uh, it, uh, eventually we began to refer to this uh, as uh, Advana. And you, you want to begin to ask me, well, what's that mean? Because I know it has to be an acronym uh, it's not an acronym. It's sort of a mashup of advancing analytics uh, you know, because it contains a, a, a broad scope of data. Uh, and, uh, and clearly the financial data is, uh, is at the core, but it has evolved to support data from logistics, acquisition, supply chain, uh, uh, and so forth. Uh, that's the key. Uh, you know, it's one thing to be able to tell people how much money they have in their checkbook and how much they have left. It's another to be able to link that data to programmatic data. Mm-hmm. That's the key. What do you do with that now that you have it? What, uh, what do your successors, I should say, do with that now that you have it, Mark? The, uh, the, my successors in the financial management community, I think, are continuing to leverage that data uh, to be able to get more out of the program. Uh, the two key things that we had in mind beyond the audit uh, was, to, uh, uh, was to ensure that 
that we could uh, get more out of the resources, have better visibility during the period of the year when we can still be able to use the money, uh, uh, as well as to make our budgeteers a little bit more efficient so that they're not having to pick up the phone, call DFAS, call the operator to get answers to questions. They can have access to those are the two things that the financial management community is, is doing. The executive suite, uh, and this is where uh, Deputy Secretary uh, Hicks, I think, has, has picked up the, uh, what, we, what we thought as I was departing uh, and, uh, and Secretary Norquist was departing and turnover uh, to make uh, uh, Advana the, uh, the executive analytics uh, suite for decision making. And so they have began to use that for executive level briefings, which used to be a big stack of PowerPoint slides. I think, as I understand it, and I've been gone for a while, but, but we're moving away from that and we're moving to where uh, you can call up the data to say, what's this program doing? Why is it doing it? Whether it has to do with people, whether it has to do with a major weapon system acquisition. Well, and it strikes me that's not just valuable, as you use the term the C-suite, that's not just valuable to your former boss, Mike McCord, as the comptroller. That's valuable to John Sherman as the CIO to be able to call that data whenever he wants to. And that's valuable to everybody across the executive leadership of the department and then down in the individual services, too. Absolutely. And I, and I think that what, what we've tried to do with this repository, and I think that it's evolving as well, is to, uh, rather than duplicating and have competing databases, is to make sure that the uh, Department of Navy Enterprise, for example, they have a, something called Jupiter, which is really a subset uh, of the broader uh, enterprise to allow them to do the things that, that they want to do. And so very, very uh, important, very broad use. And you mentioned John Sherman. I, my understanding is he's the, he has become the acting uh, chief data officer. I think Secretary Hicks has created an office of, uh, of uh, data uh, administration, I think, and, uh, and artificial intelligence to try to centralize that. And I wouldn't be at all surprised to see some of the Advana capabilities moved into that kind of a, a central role. It'll still be a, a service provider uh, across the board. And, and I'm sure uh, 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 Secretary McCord is thinking about what he needs uh, if, if, in fact, uh, Advana would move uh, into that new office. All right. Given the evolution that you've described in this conversation, Mark. I go to uh, the credential that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. I would not think of Defense Acquisition University as a place that would have a professor of financial management, but it strikes me there's an intersection here with the acquisition, with IT, with human capital, and with financial management that maybe we haven't seen before uh, or maybe seen at this level before. Am I reading that right, do you think? I, I think clearly uh, uh, President uh, Jim Wolsey, uh, who's the president of the Defense Acquisition University, uh, several years ago embarked on a, uh, an effort to be able to tailor the learning to uh, you know, the needs, the current needs of the acquisition community. And part of that is the evolution of, uh, of financial management. Uh, I've, uh, you know, I'm very new there. Uh, but I have already seen uh, where uh, senior program managers are exposed to uh, data and data analytics, the importance of data, obviously not making them data scientists, of course, but, but at the same time, ensuring that they are aware. I mean, I, I, I sort of have an agenda to try to begin to break down stovepipes. Uh, and I think, you know, very, very capable faculty at DAU and really it's the Defense Systems Management College uh, that I work most closely with. Uh, very, very capable uh, uh, faculty 
uh, they bring together all aspects. And so uh, this kind of an aspect, I think, is uh, is a natural extension of what uh, President Wolsey, I think, refers to sort of back to basics, making a tailored product. Yeah, and maybe they don't have to be data scientists, but they should know what the art of the possible is from the data scientists with which they work. I imagine that's what you're going for, right? Oh, absolutely, and 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 to understand the environment uh, that is. I mean, there's there's a there is a, a commission that has just been formed on trying to uh, trying to uh, uh, streamline, if you will, look at the PPBE process. Uh, uh, one of my older bosses, Bob Hale, is uh, is part of that. Uh, Ellen Lord is. Is part of that as well, and so my my hope is that uh, is data will be important in uh, being able to gain transparency, improve trust and confidence with our appropriators, for example, uh, because I think that uh, you know we're hoping that they will be more flexible. We need to be more transparent to to be able to make those changes, and I, and I hope data is the key. Again, it's going to make us a more cost effective organization, and it's going to make us uh, an organization that can provide better data to our senior decision makers. Mark Easton, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Francis, take care. Thank you. You can read more about the Marine Corps financial management transition in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. If you want to do something with your thrift savings plan account, soon the TSP will have an app for that. The timeline from Kim Weaver of the TSP is on tomorrow's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Agencies have another year to move contracts to the new Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions vehicle. Fifteen agencies got Fs in the most recent Fatara scorecard for their transitions to EIS. Jim Williams is partner at Shambach and Williams Consulting. He's former deputy administrator and acting administrator at the General Services Administration. Jim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. EIS is just the latest of these big vehicles to have some kind or other of a hiccup. What's the challenge that the uh, community is up against here, Jim, and what potentially do we do about it? Welcome. Well, good to see you, Francis. And you can talk about big vehicles. You can talk about other current vehicles, or you could go back in time with the telecom vehicles, back to networks, back to FTS 2001. And the recent GAO report on the delays, or you could pick up the same report in 2014, the same one in 2001. It says almost the same thing. And I think in this case, it probably comes down to three Ps, people, planning, and pandemic. You know, that even if you go back to the earlier GAO reports said the agencies don't have all the resources they need to do the proper transition. And they haven't, once again, done all the planning ahead of time to be ready for this, you know, getting the inventory, getting the transition plan down, and then a pandemic hits. And I, I think in recent articles, Zane and Meg pointed to all the uh, the supply chain shortages, and I think that is a real impact. So while I think, I think GSA has done a great job this time around, they've continued to learn lessons. Laura Stanton, Alan Hill, that team has done a good job helping the agencies. But I, I think there, there is going to be yet another delay. So are we going to be looking at this in 2072 you know, and say delays? GAO comes out, reports us, well, it looks like it's going to take another six years. Well, the last transition took six, six years. Maybe this time they can beat that, that record. So how do we break out of that cycle, though? Because you're not the first person to cite the fact that we've done this before. 
you said a moment ago, if you took the GAO report from 2014 or took one from 2001, that would say basically the same thing. How do we break out of that cycle? If it's not GSA's fault, is it the agencies for not being prepared? I, I think it's it's more the agencies. Uh, but let me say on the agency's behalf, every cycle around, it gets inordinately more complex. I mean, telecom used to be just telecom. Now it's enterprise infrastructure services. The amount of connected devices, the amount of telecommunication lines, it's just incredibly uh, complex. And here they've added in the local services contracts, which are just adds, you know, hundreds and hundreds more contracts that have to be transitioned. So it is more complex. But to get out of this, I think upper level management looks to need to look at this and say, this is important. We need to make sure we're ready. Now, you look right now, we have things like Ukraine, pandemic, uh, inflation, immigration, all these other things that look like higher priorities. But somebody on the management side has to pay attention and say, do you have the resources you need, whether they're government resources or contract resources or likely both? You know, have you done the proper planning? Have, do you have the inventory? Do you have the plan ready? And, and, and make sure when GSA awards or prior to award, you're ready to hit the street with that fair and open, you know, uh, fair of competition and ready to go and, and try not to make the acquisition process too complex. I will say ActIAC has tried to help there. I think they can help even more next time around. What is the proper planning that an organization should do when something like this comes down to pike, Jim? Well, two things. One is really, uh, well, maybe more than two, but one is getting the requirements down. So a lot of times you have discussions between the headquarters and the agencies or components about who owns what pieces and, and how do you take an enterprise strategy, but still let agencies or components do the parts they should do. That makes it more complex. You've got to get the requirements down by getting those internal agreements on, on things on who owns what and who's going to take care of what piece of the, the network or the system. I, I think you've also got to get the people in place and, and the plans. So getting the requirements down, getting, getting those plans ahead of time and the people to staff those plans ready to go, I, I think that's going to make a big difference. And I don't think many agencies, well, you can see by the Fs on the Fatara scorecard, have really done all of those things well, is it helpful that that's that it's on the Fatara scorecard, that it's something that from time to time somebody holds up something and says, you guys aren't doing so hot. It's time to step it up. I've always believed what gets measured gets done. And there's got to be somebody paying attention that other than just, you know, one or two people up on the hill. It's got to be OMB uh, and GSA together, both helping the agencies and monitoring their progress and saying, what else do you need? Uh, you know, and ensuring also the proper funding is there because this is a spike every 10 years where you have to have a concerted effort and a spike in funding in order to make that transition work. And really, you know, when you when you talk about, you know, doing this, you don't want to motivate the agencies to do what they call like for like. Just take what you have and replace it. You, you want to get them to transform. How do you take the power, all, all the things that are in now in EIS and really transform how you do work? The pandemic and remote work has made us all change how we are going to do work. Even as we go back to work, work will never be the same. The telecommunications system and the enterprise infrastructure has to facilitate that. And that takes planning, too. All right. I apologize if this is a dumb question, but it wouldn't be the first dumb question I've asked you in the years that we've known each other, Jim. 
if the transitions are rocky every time we make these transitions, what's the reason that we can't create a vehicle that we don't have to transition from anymore, that just has on-ramps and off-ramps for new and old technology that uh, can be added and, and taken from as, as needed? Well, it's a good question. I mean, one thing is we do this every 10 years where we force everybody at the same time, which is the private sector and the government, to go through this in a crash course altogether. You know, could you stagger this out? Uh, there are complexities. It's kind of like staggering out the filing of your taxes. There, it, you think that's a simple thing to alleviate and smooth that workload, but then you find out that there's a lot of other issues. I think, number one, what you want to do is you want to uh, get competition, both technological competition and price competition. And, and part of that is by doing the, the big upfront competition at one time. And, and so doing it in a staggered way, uh, I, I think it, is, it may cause a little more problems. So I think it's worth looking at, but, uh, but I think it's not the, the core of the issue right now. All right. Um, normally I would do a bet at in this part of the conversation but i'm not going to today um i i just will ask you the delay that gsa has put in place for eis is it the last one or does giving the extra year give everybody the headroom they need the bandwidth they need to make this transition get it over with well my bet would be they don't have to do it again uh but i would have bet last time that they had to um, because you know agencies weren't far enough along, and I know they've got a lot of Fs, but I think a lot of agencies have made a lot of progress here, and you know, I, you know people are coming back to work. Uh, hopefully, there's some attention on this by the new administration. Um, and, and when you look at it, it really is an enabler to a lot of the things that they want to do. So I, I hope that you know the people coming in, the assistant secretaries for management, you know the people coming in and into OMB, and I, and I think they've got two great candidates, Shalanda Young and, and Nani Coloretti, who I know well is great. I think, you know, they're experienced people, particularly Nani's been around the, the block in a few agencies. Hopefully they'll pay attention and, and really put a spotlight on this. So I think the answer is, I think the agencies will get it done. Jim Williams, great to talk to you as always, my friend. Thanks. You're welcome, Francis. Great to see you. You can read more about the problems with the EIS contract in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The National Geospatial Intelligence Agency's fusing commercial solutions and unclassified information in the cloud. Chris Johnson is the Deputy Chief Technology Officer at NGA. In a discussion about cloud with my colleague Wyatt Cash, Johnson explains one of the things he says he loves most about NGA. We have some pretty significant um, public-facing missions that we support. And one of those is our notice to mariners uh, for safety of navigation. Uh, mm -hmm. That's not just something that we do for uh, the U.S. government or for our allies. It's a service we provide free of charge uh, to the whole world, uh, to every every ship, every mariner that's out on the seas um, has access to, to our products um, in order to make sure that they're aware of dangers, um, and, and the latest when it comes to uh, the, the shipping channel. So it's a really exciting mission. And we really used cloud to kind of transform how we deliver that mission to those customers, because it is one of our statutory 
mission. So it's, it's, it's defined in law. And it's one of the few that we have that actually has availability requirements, uptime requirements that go along with it. Um, you know, historically, looking back at it, it was it was a challenge, techno te technologically speaking. Um, and with cloud, we were able to leverage a content distribution network, a CDN, um, in order to host that data globally uh, to, to minimize any possible disruption uh, to those to those customers. Uh, we never could have done that um, in a traditional on-prem data center um, uh, 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 implementation. So cloud really fundamentally allowed us to, to, to maintain that data set and get it out there to the users around the world where they are and when they need access to that data with, with no disruptions. Well, uh, what were the primary technology challenges that, um, you know, that your agency was facing in delivering these kinds of services to the public? And how, how did the cloud actually help you overcome them? Yeah, so for, for GeoN, I, I think that we always have three kind of ever-present uh, real big technology challenges, and that is uh, speed, agility, and availability, right? We're, we're an intelligence agency, so getting the, the data into the hands of the people that need it as quickly as possible, that's, that's really important. Um, making sure it's always available, really important. Uh, being able to respond to mission demands in real time, really important. Uh, cloud kind of changed that for us a little bit. You know, we're, we're in the process of adopting and moving toward a, a service-oriented architecture, right? A, a service-oriented architectures are much easier uh, to implement in, in a cloud environment. Uh, they, they lead to things like automation, right? Uh, automation as a result of the standards that, are, that come with adopting a service-oriented architecture. That automation is key. You can take previous missions or business functions that were separated and that were kind of stovepiped off, and you can now bring them together and, and rapidly um, deliver additional capabilities to those customers. Well, if you could, maybe could you describe a couple of key outcomes that the cloud has allowed NGA to achieve compared to where you were maybe just a couple of years ago? Yeah, one of the big ones for us was a, what I'll call it a day one development environment, right? So historically speaking, when, when we go out and we contract for services and we get developers on board, there's a very lengthy onboarding process in order to get those developers all of the accesses they need to the various uh, systems and accounts and emails. Um, it could take weeks sometimes to get them up and running. What cloud has allowed us to do is to build an environment for those developers that requires just local level government approval. And so the developers can start coding on day one. They can start working right away and delivering value back to the government and more importantly to those mission customers um, instead of having those weeks longs of lag time uh, while, we, uh, while we bring them up to, uh, up to speed. Um, you know, another really key thing is the ability to, to build and destroy daily or, or even more frequently than that, right? As we look at the world of, of DevSecOps, as we look at, you know, things that are offered by infrastructure as a service and containerization, we can do things so much faster than we used to be able to do in a traditional physical environment in an on-prem data center where you could just destroy an environment. This isn't working or we've got a problem. We can instantly roll the whole thing back. Um, or deploy an entirely new deployment in a matter of seconds instead of the, the months, if not years, it would have taken historically to do those things, having to bring in physical devices into a data center. That sounds really impressive and makes so much sense. 
Um, lastly, Chris, what, what were maybe one or two key lessons or maybe even surprises that you experienced moving to the cloud? And where do you plan to adopt additional cloud services next as a result? Yeah, so I'll say two of the, the big things that we noticed as, as we made our journey, and it, it was, it's a journey, it's a journey that we're all still on really uh, into cloud was, and, and this problem still exists today. There is still a very large misconception with a large group of stakeholders that cloud is a technology model, right? It's not, it's a business model. Um, you can go and build a cloud in your own on-prem data center if you want to. Um, the questions about going to cloud and whether or not a particular mission or business function should go to cloud really need to resolve around business questions like cost, risk, those types of things. Um, another big issue we had was managing the expectations of our customers uh, and our users. The, the government clouds that exist don't necessarily have all of the cool bells and whistles and services that are available in those public clouds on day one but everybody wanted them. And we were definitely not prepared for the overwhelming response for those services. Uh, and it takes a while to get those services migrated from a public cloud into the government cloud. Uh, so just kind of having those processes in place ahead of time was, a, was kind of a key lesson for us uh, because users will absolutely want those services. The deputy CTO at NGA, Chris Johnson, you can find a link to watch the video of that conversation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Friday, the TSP's app journey. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.